Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In 1835, when the federal government tasked the U.S. Army to forcibly remove the Seminole from the Florida Territory, militia from Florida and volunteers from the several states aided the Army in carrying out this controversial task. In this episode, we will assess how the militia and the regular Army of the United States of America performed in the Second Seminole Wars. Jesse Marshall returns to talk to us about the militia and the regular Army of the United States of America in the Second Seminole War. Jesse posits informed answers that explain the mechanics behind fielding military forces and how its limitations in quality of armaments and caliber of soldiers severely reduced its overall effectiveness in its task of Seminole Indian removal. Jesse Marshall, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. What can you say about the performance of the overall military effort? What we can say is that the military forces of the United States, which combined was the Army, Navy, Marines, and the militia of several states in federal service and the territory of Florida, that these forces over several years did manage to enforce, for the most part, the Indian Removal Law of 1830 and the treaties of Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson, the specific closure of the Florida Seminole Reservation and their required removal west to their reservation lands established there. These laws were may not have even been popular with the majority of the persons involved in this military duty, but by the conclusion of the conflict at the behest of uh, President Tyler, the Seminole had been reduced to less than 400 people in Florida. 4,500 or more or so had been removed to the West. So the mission was considered accomplished by President Tyler, who is the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military and of those militia who are in federal service. I noticed the Army used the term accomplish the mission as opposed to successfully or won or victory or things of that nature. Still, we must concede it most definitely was not pretty, but it did mostly get the job done. Whether it was worth the cost or should have ever been pursued, that's a question for another podcast. So although ultimately successful, mostly, in the end, what was the state of the U.S. military on the eve of the Second Seminole War? By the close of 1835, the U.S. Army included a maximum of 7,000 and some officers and enlisted men. It was never at full strength, and of course a significant number of men would be sick at any given time. There was also issue about desertion, AWOL, absent without leave personnel. So an effective force of 5,000, 6,000 maybe. The militia of the several states, based on the annual returns of the several state adjutant generals, brought the total enrolled militia up to 1.5 million plus. As you can see, there's a significant numerical advantage to the militia forces of the United States versus the Army. When called forth, they were all subject to the authority of the President of the United States as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and the militia of the United States in federal service. All right, so that's the state of play in late 1835. Numbers for the Army, numbers for the militia throughout the country. How did they fare in the Second Seminole War? The militia versus regular troops in the Seminole War. Let's just step back. What is the purpose of the war? The purpose of the war was to enforce the Indian Removal Act and particularly the treaties of Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson and remove the Seminole Indians to the Seminole Reservation established in the Indian Territory west of the Mississippi River. Insofar as that process took several years, the majority of the Seminoles surrendered or were captured, as far as I understand, during the first half of the war, during a period in which large numbers of militia and volunteer troops were employed alongside regular troops in Florida. I believe General Jessup, by his vacating the command in mid-1838, had sent a few thousand Seminoles west by that time. After 1838, there were not very many Seminoles left in the territory of Florida. The government saw fit to reduce the number of militia and volunteer units used by the Army, and instead to increase the size of the Army slightly 
to allow for a larger proportion of it to serve in Florida on the long term. And so from 1838 to 42, a period in which the regular troops did most of the garrison duty in South Florida, and militia units of Florida particularly did garrison and Minuteman duty in the northern part of the territory, the larger part of the Seminoles that were captured and surrendered were secured by the regulars in South Florida, but the numbers were smaller, so that by 1842, 4,500 or so Seminoles total that were secured and relocated, leaving at Colonel Worth's estimate or understanding something over 300 Seminole Indians in the territory at the time that President Tyler declared an end to the use of military force to enforce those treaties. Jesse, we call this a rivalry, but they they actually needed each other, the regulars and the militia, in order to bring this to a successful conclusion, at least as defined by the U.S. government. So if we look at it, it's a total picture. Could the regular army have achieved those results without the use of any militia or regular troops? With the strength that it had, the answer generally would be no. Being only several thousand strong, garrisoning seacoasts on the Atlantic coast, all the Indian frontiers, not to mention the Canadian front, because by no means did most Americans consider Canada a friendly neighbor being a part of the British establishment at that time. And when the war broke out, the governor called up militia. But he could only call up the ones who stayed in the territory. What was happening here? When the war broke out in November, December 1835, acting governor Eaton of Florida called out the militia of East Florida particularly. When the war broke out and the violence struck, a large number of settlers north of the Seminole Reservation headed to Georgia. <laughs> So, for example, the 6th Regiment, which was right on the border with the Seminole borderlands, uh, was incapable of fully organizing. And the result was that Colonel John Warren, who I believe was the colonel of the 4th Regiment based in Duval County around Jacksonville, he was forced to take direction of all these Florida militia because of the confusion wrought by the Seminole raiding and the, the flight of many people out of the district. By embodying the militia, the hope was that people wouldn't flee. They were then put into federal service to keep them embodied. They could draw federal rations. A significant number of them accompanied General Clinch's army to the Withlacoochee River. And while the majority of the 500 or so present in that action were not in the action, they were set on the other side of the river. Colonel Warren and maybe 30 of the East Florida men fought on the left flank of Clinch's regulars in that battle. If they didn't distinguish themselves, they didn't do any worse than some of the regulars, and several of them were wounded. The regular army saw the militia as an extension or an auxiliary to their main thrust. However, there were times in the early part of the Second Seminole War where the militia fought their own battles without the assistance of the regulars. How did those turn out? There were battles in the Seminole War, I must add, where Florida militia fought the Seminoles without the aid of regular troops. Notably, the Battle of Wetumpka in January of 1836, the Battle of Dunlawton in the same month, and the Battle of San Flasco Hammock in September of 1836. All three of those actions are pretty significant in their scale, similar to many of the fights between the regulars and the Seminoles. The, the Wetumpka and the San Flasco fights were successes. The Florida troops eventually drove the Seminoles from the ground. But when you read the reports of Colonel Parrish at Wetumpka and Colonel Warren from San Flasco, you recognize that the Florida troops fought the Seminoles in their own fashion, bushwhack style, where all the combatants just kind of formed a line against each other and banged away, open fire. In these firefights, eventually the Seminoles withdrew. At San Falasco, in large measure because Colonel Warren's command of Florida troops was supported by a regular army company operating a howitzer that bombarded the Seminole position while the firefight was going on. And at Dunlawton, the Floridians were driven away by the Seminoles. And at Wetumpka, the Florida troops were more successful and drove the Seminoles. But you see what that points out is that the Florida troops if they engaged in action with the Seminoles and fought in the Indian mode, it was not clear who the winner of the fight would be. It's like the Civil War, again. Two opposing sides using the identical tactics and weapons, it becomes largely a matter of willpower. Who's the better commander? All sorts of things come into play to determine who may or may not become the victor of that combat. 
The militia and the Seminole were equally matched in many ways. What happened when you added the regular army to the mix? You add the regular troops who have the unquestioned superiority and discipline and the capability of delivering the bayonet charge under fire necessary in order to take and hold ground, then that was the game changer in many cases. If General Scott had negative feelings about the militia, he set them aside when he entered Florida in 1836 to try to put down the Seminole Uprising. After the Seminole War really broke out over the winter of 1835, in late January of 1836, when General Winfield Scott was ordered by President Jackson to take control of affairs in Florida and form an army to crush the Seminole, Scott had the immediate use of several hundred regular troops that were already in Florida. He made use of several hundred more drawn from seacoast garrisons in the east, but he formed an army of about 5,000 militia volunteers, specifically, drawn from the militias of Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and even Louisiana. He didn't call for them, but General Gaines had brought a regiment from Louisiana, which Scott subsequently made use of during the balance of their three-month enlistment. The bulk of these volunteer units, as soon as they were mustered into federal service, were equipped with federal muskets. General Scott was put out about this. He wanted them to be armed with Hall's rifles, the breech-loading rifle with the bayonet, which was a fantastic modern arm, at least in theory. And he records that what's the point of having arsenals if they don't stop modern weapons? Instead, he was forced to equip his army with muskets, principally surplus from the War of 1812, although for the most part in good conditions. What was the length of these federal military call-ups? The, the war itself, President Jackson obviously didn't feel it was going to last several years, and so instead of requiring the use of these volunteer forces from the militias for a year or two years, it was three, six months, maybe one year. An example, a Washington, D.C. volunteer company did a year's tour in Florida. Its most famous member was Sergeant Sam Walker, who later became the famous Texas Ranger, the Walker Colt Revolver being named after him. So he cut his teeth on Florida campaigning as a volunteer soldier. Many of the volunteer corps individually were recognized as very efficient and if not well organized when they entered service, they were by the time they left it. You could look at it something like an active service training camp, although a very painful one considering the number of deaths by disease, much less the number of fatal casualties from what battles and skirmishes were engaged. Going back to the beginning of the war, General Scott did not intend personally to use Florida militia in his campaign into South Florida. He intended to use the militia from other states, and he wanted the Florida militia to concentrate where it was organized in local defense of the settlements. However, the governor of Florida, Governor Eaton, and General Call, a commander of the 1st Brigade of Florida militia, did organize a battalion of infantry in western and middle Florida that was accepted for federal service and acted as an infantry battalion with Scott's army at Tampa. It was under Major Lee Reed and served throughout Scott's campaign. There were also some Florida units, uh, by 37 mounted units that were sent on lengthy patrols into the Lake Gestapo region and so forth. By and large, the Florida units were considered necessary to secure the settlements. The largest Florida militia force that was organized was the Brigade of Florida Militia formed in 1840-41. That brigade served for, I believe, six months. It was to include mostly mounted units, but it was also to include at least four companies of infantry. There was some hot debate in Congress, I might add, over this, over why these militia needed to be put into federal service to engage in home defense. Mr. White, the territorial delegate for Florida, and David Leviuli later, who served in the Florida militia in this period, explained on the floor of the House and in their various writings that these volunteer units were essentially no different than the Minutemen of the American Revolution. The Minutemen don't encamp separate from their homes. They're Minutemen because they are prepared for instantaneous muster and action. They drop their plows and grab their guns and move against whatever threat. And they apply whatever training or organization is required for them to act as what we would call today, I suppose, a quick reaction force. The debate, of course, being that, well, why don't we use regular troops for that? But that comes back to the argument between different political theories, whether the regular army was more efficient than the militia slash Minutemen type units for this. What was the likelihood of actually getting called up for federal service? 
the majority of American militia between 1800 and 1850 were never called into federal service. Partly that's because of the general reliance in wartime on volunteers. The army and the militia were only two elements of the entire force that was employed in the Second Seminole War in Florida. Talk about that, please. The army, the navy, the Marine Corps, which the government has the power to employ, and the militia called forth for federal service combined together formed the military forces of the United States that were employed to enforce the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and the treaties. And by treaties, the treaties have the force of law. The treaties of Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson are controversial, but once the Senate ratified them, they had the force of law. The militia has to enforce the law unless it's unconstitutional. And, of course, that's a separate issue or argument. The Florida territorial militia was different from the others that had been called up because they didn't have a state to go back to. They were in the battlefield, in their territory. How active was the Florida territorial militia during the Second Seminole War? Without going into an enormous amount of detail, from 1835 through 1843, the militia of particularly Columbia and Alachua County, all the way up to the Okefenokee, and even into the Georgia borderlands, the militia of those districts were constantly on alarm and mustering in squads, companies, battalions, and regiments to attempt to repel or at least track down Seminole or Creek raiders. The bloodshed was quite horrific, really. Many families killed. With the emergency at hand, when the governors called out all the militia, what they found was, first of all, that the militia was not as organized as it was supposed to have been by law. That caused some confusion. But more, it was the fact that significant numbers of the personnel, including the officers, had taken their families and headed out of the seat of war to get out of there, leaving an ad hoc formation that Colonel Warren had to command in East Florida. What the federal government did was that it backdated federal service to November 1835 for most of these militia formations that the territory governor had called out for territorial service. They were given federal pay for that service once the federal government had taken on the war, namely that the Seminoles were resisting the removal, but also they were invading the territory of Florida by leaving the former reservation boundaries and striking at the citizenry, even up into the Georgia border. The conflict was one that required the militia in constant alarm. East Florida troops generally conglomerated around certain towns or hamlets Fort Gilliland was constructed in early 1836, which East Florida militiamen were constantly encamped at, ready to move like Minutemen against any incursion or raids. Even in the latter years of the Seminole War, the Florida militia were very active. And the whole brigade were organized under the adjutant general, a West Point graduate, to make more efficient the Minuteman function of the Florida volunteers in North Florida against Seminole raiding. At the same time, the regulars were bulked up. As is often the case, the cost of the regulars is what concerned the Congress most. Could they get better use for the cost out of the militia or spend the money, recruit the soldiers, and have an army that is bigger but costs more? The Constitution leaves those questions to the Congress. There was a typical and expected political debate during the same period where the various parties and interests in Congress were arguing that the regular army, instead of using inefficient militia troops, the money should be spent to increase the army. And then there was the similar calls that the regular army should be reduced and the money then expended to increase the use of militia units. But that's what Congress is for, to debate everything within its purview. Well, what came out of all this debate? The end result by 1842-43 was the system that was subsequently employed in the war with Mexico. So to the extent that the U.S. Army and the various militias and many militia officers and enlisted men had seen active duty during the Florida War and were now familiar with Army regulations, with drill and tactics, camp disciplines, and could even tell you General Scott by sight after having served with him in the wilderness, for example. These are the forces that subsequently became a cadre for the Army employed in the war with Mexico to a great success with the capture of the Mexico City and the subsequent cession of the Western 
section northwestern Mexico to the United States. Some militia officers made a name for themselves with the regulars. Sometimes that was a good name. Many militia officers were marked by the regular commanders who noticed that there's officers of merit here, first of all, Smith being notable among them. Many of the regular officers noted that Captain Hezekiah Thistle of the Louisiana Volunteers was extraordinarily efficient. They also saw among the Louisiana militia, Krahan Care. They noticed he was capable of organizing his militia company to an extraordinary degree and subsequently was appointed a captain in the 2nd Dragoon Regiment of the U.S. Dragoons in 1836-37. He was offered a commission. The theme of this episode is the great rivalry between the militia and the regular army. That's from an institutional viewpoint. There were actual circumstances with individuals who felt that there was a problem. I'll give an example about some of the jealousy this sort of thing could cause and did. Colonel William S. Foster was the commander of the 4th Infantry Regiment in Florida in the first two years of the war. He engaged in three major battles, the fighting at Camp Izzard, the battles known as Scott's Battle, or the Battle of Halaslakaha on March 31st, 1836 in the cove swamps of the Withlacoochee, and at the Battle of Nonasassa Creek in April of 1836. And that's not even mentioning the later Battle of Okeechobee, which he was very much distinguished in. The difference between Okeechobee and these other three actions is that in these first three, he was a regular officer with almost a quarter of a century of active service, including on the Canadian front in the War of 1812. And yet, despite his obvious active service over many years, he found himself ranked by militia colonels because he himself was a brevet lieutenant colonel of the regulars. So that when he found himself acting for example, at Scott's Battle, he was under the tactical command of Colonel Persifor Smith of the Louisiana Militia, who was in federal service as a volunteer officer. And so how much active duty had Persifor Smith had in the U.S. service? Well, he had had about several weeks worth by that time. But you see, he still ranked Foster, and Foster makes clear in his marvelous letters and memoirs edited by the Missiles and published as This Miserable Pride of a Soldier, He's very clear about his distaste for that, and it really came to the fore at the Battle of Pannonisassa Creek, where in that action, he was under the command of another militia colonel, Colonel William Chisholm of the Alabama Volunteer Regiments of 1836, who commanded during the Battle of Pannonisassa Creek. Foster admits that Chisholm was gallant and did everything required of a commanding officer in battle, but it didn't hide that it clearly rankled him that again a militia colonel ranked him in action, which in his mind robbed him of the means by which he would be officially noticed and thereby perhaps promoted by government action for gallantry in the field. You see, the, the federal government wasn't going to give a brevet or a promotion to a militia colonel who was going to be discharged from federal service within several weeks. Foster, as a professional, required notice for brevets for gallantry and things of that nature. I bring this up because Colonel William Chisholm, the commander at the Battle of Thunanasassa Creek, was a veteran of the regular army. He commanded a company of the 8th U.S. Infantry, I believe before and during the War of 1812, and he left the regular army as a captain shortly after the War of 1812 and settled in Alabama, where I've seen reference that he kept a hotel, etc. When the Alabama Regiment of Volunteers was organized in 1836, he was the captain of a company of Montgomery Volunteers and in the election for a colonel for the entire regiment, he having obviously the most active service on the Indian frontiers because he served on the Creek frontier in the War of 1812, he was elected the colonel of the regiment. So you see, here's a case where Colonel Foster and Colonel Chisholm would have had a certain degree in common, having both been company commanders in the regular army in the War of 1812. The distinction being that Colonel Foster had submitted to another couple of decades of active duty in the regular army, it had honed his tactical skills to a razor's edge, as is confirmed by the movements and actions of his regiment in all these battles. But it had personally only brought him to the rank of brevet lieutenant colonel, while Chisholm, who had kept a hotel in Alabama by being elected by his men to a colonelcy and subsequently mustered into federal service as such, that became the commander of this column in a desperate battle that obviously Foster felt he should have been in charge. And he kind of said so. He mentions to his wife that it's really discouraging to find himself constantly being ranked by militia colonels. 
Now, he finally was promoted to colonel himself following the Battle of Okeechobee, where, because Colonel Zachary Taylor of the 1st Infantry was the commander of the forces involved, there were no militia colonels ranking Foster on the occasion. So he fought his own battle, as it were, there at Okeechobee, and he was recognized in orders, and he received a, a brevet of colonel, and Taylor received a brevet of brigadier general. Okay, so here's the question. Is the Second Seminole War a proving ground for the Army, for officers, for enlisted or was it just a colossal waste of time and effort? The Seminole War did prove to be a proving ground for the interaction of regular and militia troops under federal command in the field, particularly in remote climes. First in Florida, where there's no roads and logistics are very difficult. And within a few years, they used that same skill set in Mexico, serving in the western deserts, serving in Mexico at the end of tenuous supply lines, much as they had to a smaller level in Florida, marching through the wilderness. One challenge for such a disparate force is enforcing discipline. And it didn't matter if you were in the regular army over the militia. You have to remember that in the wilds of Florida, even the regular units were not subject to garrison discipline. For example, at Fort Foster, which was considered one of the finest field fortifications of its kind built against Indians in North America at the time it was built in late 1836, that the garrison there was ordered to conduct nothing more than a single roll call a day. They didn't do dress parade. There was no time for drill. And indeed, by 1839, when the Army's commanding general-in-chief, Alexander Maycomb, toured the territory and the various garrisons on the Indian seat of war boundary, as it were, he found that the bulk of the regular troops for lack of constant training, etc., were incapable of rendering the basic salutes of drill and parade. He mentioned his aide, John T. Sprague, kept a journal of his trek. Mentions they were actually surprised when one garrison, the handful of officers who were familiar with artillery drill, were able to fire a blank cannon salute for the commanding general's arrival. While most of the officers and men, even of the regulars, having served in Florida for many years, they had knocked the shine off of them. Is that a if you understand my meaning. And indeed, when regular units came out of the Florida Territory, General Maycomb gave very specific general orders that their officers were to be held very much accountable that all of their habits that they had acquired in the wilds of Florida were to be forgotten. They were to have the men dress in their proper uniforms every day. They were to be subject to inspection that they could drill as they should, just like fortress troops. And why would he say that? Well, it's because, according to several officers, including Sprague, during the Florida War, the regular units in Florida only practiced the light infantry or skirmish drill. It was the only one suitable to fight Indians in a swamp or a wilderness, and so that's what they concentrated on, to the point where many of the regular units were no more capable of performing the heavy infantry drill of Scud's tactics than many common militia units that drilled three or four times a year. For example, the 4th Artillery Regiment was stationed in Florida for three years after 1836. It pleased the colonel not to require of the clothing department of the army to provide dress uniforms to his regiment during that period. In fact, it's mentioned that he also didn't want the white cotton fatigue clothing, which was easily soiled and was not very sturdy. So that the men of the 4th Artillery Regiment, which served as infantry in Florida, or light infantry really if you specific, to the exclusion of everything else, they wore their winter fatigue uniform, which is the familiar one of sky blue woolen cloth with a leather forage cap. So when the 4th Artillery Regiment was ordered out of the territory of Florida in 1839 to a grand tactical encampment of regular troops and militia at Trenton, New Jersey, it was noted that the regiment had to draw an entire new outfit of uniforms, meaning the parade dress, and uh, there were some newspaper descriptions that mentioned the soldiers of the regiment, most of whom had been sent to the regiment in Florida. They'd never worn a uniform. They'd only worn fatigue clothing. So the men were in a desperate haste in camp to take apart and refit the issued uniforms so they could appear on parade on 4th of July, 1839 in Trenton with some credit. And of course, they were going to be inspected by army inspectors. So of course, the officers were on them about that to <laughs> get the your uniforms in order. The general description by Captain McCall of the 4th Infantry was that the 4th Infantrymen he served with in Florida generally just wore their flannel shirts. 
didn't wear any kind of uniform per se. He says he himself just carried a shotgun instead of a sword. And there are many other references. For example, the 1st Artillery Regiment, a South Carolina volunteer officer mentioned that by the end of the campaign of 1836, you couldn't tell the difference between the volunteers and the regulars. They were all covered in mud. But the regulars maybe had an advantage in their skill level of touching elbows and upright heads from the school of the soldier and Scott's tactics. But otherwise, they didn't really look any different. The other issue is the full parade uniform of the Army was expensive, and it had a woolen felt stiffened tall cylindrical cap with pom-poms on it and eagle plate and a blue coat with a padded chest and tails down to the knees practically or, or within several inches of the knees and was just not really designed for service in a region like Florida where the troops were constantly having to construct the roads as they move. We have to recollect, and it's difficult to comprehend, almost every military movement conducted by either militia, volunteers, or regular troops in Florida during the Florida War, they had to construct the route as they went. So the troops were rotated as pioneers, chopping down the trees. They had a cannon with them. They had to practically move it over tree stumps. It was one of the complaints that when the Ordnance Department sent the light and mobile 12-pound mountain howitzers were sent to Florida. They're very small, very mobile. But what General Jessup says is they weren't useful because they wouldn't clear the tree stumps since the troops were cutting the trees, building the roads as they went. (laughs) It might not have been the end of the world that the Army didn't wear their uniforms in a spit-and-polished fashion during the Florida Wars. Some just donned frontier civilian dress. Its proponents maintain that it doesn't matter what the uniform is for fighting this type of irregular warfare. Perhaps, but it doesn't necessarily make them more effective. Wearing a military uniform properly takes discipline. Soldiers who eschewed the discipline of wearing a uniform may cut corners elsewhere. And one of the big areas that we've seen is in maintaining unit cohesion during battles. Much to the army's chagrin, battles that should have been convincing victories ended up a draw because of unit cohesion problems for the militia and sometimes for the regulars. We can see the proof of that at the battles of Okeechobee and at the Battle of Loxahatchee in December 1837 and January 1838. In both of those actions, the mounted volunteers of Missouri at Okeechobee and then the mounted Tennesseans that were present at Loxahatchee, when these units were deployed in their light infantry order to make their attacks against the enemy positions, they suffered large casualties, larger than normal. And the unifying element, as one army officer pointed out, is that in making their advances, they had largely stalled and in some cases had bunched together. And in so doing, they made themselves a target. The Battle of Okeechobee, some of the Missourians mentioned that they and their comrades found themselves essentially alone in the battle. In other words, they had no idea if the other files were where they were or even if they were to their right or left, and they had very little faith that they were, and so many of the Missourians withdrew. And so that's a lack of unit cohesion when it comes down to it, isn't it? When you don't have the trust that the file that you can't see in the woods is supposed to be 20 or 30 yards to your left or to your right, if you can't guarantee yourself mentally that they're there, you're more likely to withdraw. And that's essentially what happened at at Okeechobee to the Missourians, particularly after the regimental commander was killed. And the regiment doesn't seem to have had any regimental command after Gentry fell. At Loxahatchee, the Tennesseans opened fire on the Seminole position and wouldn't charge into the woods. General Jessup tried to lead them as a group into the woods. They didn't follow, and Jessup was shot in the face. Elsewhere, the regular troops had plunged through the Loxahatchee River, bayonets fixed, etc., and the Seminoles on the other bank withdrew. The regular troops had the advantage of that discipline. I don't want to say that the militia was incapable of fighting the Seminoles because there were occasions where, say, the Florida militia, which, if possible, were less well-organized than even the Missourians or Tennesseans were that were in the battles just mentioned. The Florida militia occasioned itself poorly in some incidences, like the Battle of Dunlawton in January of 1836. Sergeant Ormond of one of the companies there mentioned that they were a rabble under no authority of their officers. They got whipped by Coacuche and his warriors in that fight, in which a few men were killed and several wounded as they withdrew. Some claims of the Battle with Lacucci that the Florida troops, by not crossing the river to engage in the fight, had not done 
as well as they should have. There were about 27 or 30 Floridians that were in the battle. They were largely formed on the left of the regular troops in the woods, and they fought, according to one of their number, in the skirmish order with the men behind trees. And he says, frankly, we were so scared we didn't know what we were doing. The regular troops, we have the account of John Bemrose. He wasn't in the battle line, but his comrades informed him after the battle that when they deployed the skirmishers into the woods, that they really didn't feel any differently, that the individual soldiers just hunkered down in the bushes and were taking slugs of whiskey from their canteens. And eventually the regular officers had to reorganize the regular companies back into close order to get control of them. Regulars and militia were equally affected by the terrain and the circumstances of battle against the Seminoles. The lone advantage of the regulars being that they were certain Certainly under regular discipline, and because of their drill and training in a skirmish with the men scattered through the woods fighting it out, seemingly alone, they would have been more aware of where their comrades were supposed to be. The lack of unit cohesion at various times cost the army many opportunities to, at least in their mind, wrap up the war and get on to other theaters. The Tennesseans, when they were called on to make a frontal attack, their attack stalled. The Tennesseans opened fire to trade fire with the Seminoles. Meanwhile, the Dragoons, of course, were closing with them to come to grips against them. And knowing that the Seminoles wouldn't do that, the Seminoles ran away. But General Jessup was evidently very disappointed in the Tennesseans that they wanted to fight the Indians in their own fashion rather than fight the Indians in the European fashion of close action with them. And supposedly Jessup even drew a pistol on one of the Tennessee commanders threatened him to get his men moving into the attack. Jessup supposedly led that attack and was shot in the cheek and when he turned around, the Tennesseans weren't behind him anymore. Now, notably, the Tennesseans in that fight suffered more casualties than any other unit. That may be because they were facing the bulk of the Indian riflemen in the chance where their position was. But there was at least one officer in the pages of the Army Navy Chronicle wrote a letter stating that the casualties are meaningless, that when the Tennesseans' attack stalled, they were consequently exposed the enemy's fire longer than the regular units that closed distance so rapidly that the enemy fled. We see the same thing in the Civil War. General Jackson at First Manassas telling his Virginia Brigade to wait till the enemy closed and fire into them and charge and use the bayonet, meaning that they'll run away after they've been disordered by your fire. But what we see generally in the Civil War is the volunteer units of both sides would come into rough rifle or musketry range and blaze away at each other almost like a duel. If you didn't place the military doctrine on the militia, that's exactly what they would have done with the Indians, like at the Battle of Point Pleasant. They just hunker down and bang away at each other until one side or the other has had enough. European tactics were to take and hold ground. In other words, they're on that ground and we're going to occupy it. We're going to drive them off of it and we're going to occupy it. So again, the militia would be criticized for not fulfilling that particular role in these wilderness battles. How much of this was a leadership issue? Volunteer units in federal service of the militia they elected their own officers, and if the officers were not efficient, then the units would not be efficient. Even the regulars admit that. We can't make a categorical statement that all the militia had bad unit cohesion, or all the regulars had good unit cohesion. It was a mixed bag, and it was unevenly spread out throughout the military. It came down to leadership. Frequent comments from the time period mentioned that Colonel Persifor F. Smith's regiment of Louisiana volunteers under General Gaines was second to none in their camp discipline, march discipline, and in fact proved extraordinarily bold in, in action at Camp Izzard in the subsequent Battle of Halaflakaha, or Scott's Battle, in March of 1836, were equal with the 4th Infantry in rushing toward the foe. But then other units, like Colonel Chisholm's Alabama Regiment, when they were attacked at the Nornasassa Creek a couple months later, the 4th Infantry was in that fight. And according to an officer at Fort Brook, the 4th Infantry officers complained that the Alabamians were not as willing as the Louisianians had been to close with the enemy, even though the Alabamians had performed their service satisfactorily, according to the official reports of the action. They closed within gunshot distance, by their own account, good gunshot distance, and blazed away at the Seminoles. But what is lacking is a reference that they made a specific and active effort to close with the enemy, to drive them from the ground they occupied, you see. That's what the 4th Infantry did during that battle, which subsequently concluded it. 
It was intended because the federal government, by saying that the militia of the U.S. after 1820 had to use the same tactics as the Army, the militia were held to that same standard, even though they lacked organization or even the capability to achieve that level of discipline, you see. When the criticism about Taylor's handling in Okeechobee came out, the Secretary of War attempted to defend Taylor in the public print, saying he had to put the Missourians in front as skirmishers because they were light troops at best. It would have been silly to try to use them as a regular force in battle line. This is why Taylor gave them the credit that he did when he said they fought better than militia generally, because even though he intended them to fight as a light corps and skirmish order, Colonel Gentry, their commander, had them make a frontal attack, and they even pressed into the swamp about 80 to 100 yards and held their position for the better part of an hour until their lack of command. After Gentry fell, the lieutenant colonel of the regiment evidently disappeared or was a non-entity, and so the regiment's cohesion reached a point where company commanders withdrew their men from the action. That's when Taylor says the regiment broke. That's what he meant. But what the Missourians in their own deposition state, their big complaint is the way that Taylor's report just says they mostly broke. and doesn't give any detail about it. And so many of the Missourians wrote depositions explaining that, yes, the regiment became disorganized. And yes, they did go back to the camp across the swamp, back to the camp, while firing was yet going on in the distance with the 4th Infantry. But one of the things they wanted to point out in their own deposition is they did not withdraw under fire. Only when the Seminoles opposite their front disappeared did they withdraw. Because Taylor's report is so spare in language, and he just says, well, the Missourians mostly broke. It gives the impression in one's mind that they broke under fire. And the Missourians wanted to point out, no, the firing had abated at that point, and the men were scattered in the swamp. They had many casualties. They couldn't find any commander so they just withdrew at that point. One of the Missourians wanted to make the point clear. The point being, they didn't break with a panic. They broke slowly. He says, then I can prove that we withdrew without panic. We carried off all of our dead and wounded. He says, when the 6th Infantry withdrew, they did not. In fact, many of their dead were scalped after they fell back, whereas the Missourians, you know, quote, unquote, broke. This gentleman says, well, we carried all our dead and wounded back. We weren't moving in a panic. We didn't leave anyone behind. Their conduct in the battle under the circumstances is most admirable. However, there is conduct from some militia that is not admirable. We find them in an irregulated and undisciplined militia brought into federal service. Such a rogue force can make troops of any variety. Militia, volunteers, regulars seem just disreputable when they commit atrocities and crimes against their adversaries. The militia generally, when embodied, was acting under the auspices of the army. They would usually be mustered into federal service for their active duty. Even the militia companies ranging, say, Tomoka River country in 1838, they're still acting under the orders of usually a regular officer or in conjunction with regular troops. So what happens when discipline and unit cohesion fail? There was incidents in West Florida, particularly where the Creek War of 1836 spilled into West Florida across the Georgia and Alabama border. There were incidents where some of the militiamen evidently wantonly killed Creek women and children who had been captured and their jewelry stolen. No orders that we know of, and if any junior officers gave those orders, we don't know of it. I want to say that uh, Colonel Brown was the militia commander in that region at the time of that particular incident, and a regular officer examined the scene afterwards, and so far as the evidence suggested to him, they had been shot down in a group, whereas the militiamen had claimed that they had tried to escape. In the army, seen but rarely acknowledged, were blacks employed as servants in various specialties. Louis Pacheco was a valued interpreter, even though he was also in a slave status. After Dade's battle, they gathered up the casualties and buried them, and they could identify all but one who's listed as an unknown black servant. And despite this status, many of them knew their duty, especially when battling the Seminoles. Tell us what happened in Putnam's case. If you read carefully throughout the Seminole War, interesting to see, for example, Putnam's battalion, their major battle was the Battle of Dunlawton in January 1836, which one of the veterans of says, no doubt that the Seminoles 
Eagles whipped them, but it was quite a little action. And by most of the accounts, uh, among the more gallant men of Putnam's battalion was some of the, the black men that accompanied the battalion. There's a reference that when the militiamen started retreating, it was one of the colored servants in the action shamed them back into line by yelling if they were going to run from a passel of darned engines, etc. The U.S. Army clearly accepted blacks for providing support services. Overall, how picky was the U.S. Army in accepting troops or individuals to fight in the Seminole War? We also have to recognize that the U.S. Army would accept the services as volunteers of non-state personnel, namely Indians, Delaware, Creek, and even some Seminoles who served as scouts for the U.S. military in 1835 and, and through the end of the war in several cases. They were paid essentially as militia. The Creek Indian Regiment was paid and organized in conformity with the law that allowed President Jackson to employ the militia of several states. I'm making a legal statement here, but they literally were recognizing the Indians as militia in the sense that they could form volunteer units for federal service under the president's command. The interesting point here being, though, that they were mustered into service as U.S. volunteers, which means they accepted the same oath that was required of the militiamen who were called forth. How well did this type of volunteer go over with the regulars? There was a certain amount of debate about that. The regular officers usually would denigrate the performance of the militia unit and emphasize their lack of efficiency or tactical skill, particularly. And then reading the militia officers' accounts, like Mark Anthony Cooper, he says, of course my men were not efficient and well-drilled. They were militia, but they still held a position in the enemy's countryside for several weeks, virtually without succor, no supplies, and without panic, and followed every order. I understand there was one militia unit that really wouldn't quit its post until properly relieved, as that famous traditional army order goes for guards. We have the example of a company of Florida militia under Captain Holloman that were trapped in a blockhouse on the Withlacoochee River for quite some time, with several men killed and completely forgotten because their battalion commander died of disease, and everyone just assumed that somebody made arrangements to relieve them, and they were trapped on the Withlacoochee in the spring of 1836 for quite some time until a corps of had to be organized by the territory to go find them. We have the examples of the battles where, well, it's frequently mentioned that the militiamen didn't perform quite the same skill as the regulars. There's usually some reference to gallantry among them, even in controversy. Historians debate the value of the Missouri volunteers at the Battle of Okeechobee acting as a skirmish line in front of the regulars and how they behaved in the action. But there was no question that while their commander, Colonel Richard Gentry of Missouri, was commanding and before he was mortally injured and disabled, that his regiment performed credibly until it essentially became leaderless. The militia did gain some proper respect on the ground with soldiers. What did Bartholomew Lynch have to say about the militia in his view and his observation? Bartholomew Lynch was a dragoon in the U.S. Army during the Florida War, and he left an interesting memoir of his service. And while, for the most part, you will find regular officers rather disgusted with the evident lack of esprit de corps and efficiency of militia and volunteer units generally, it's interesting to look at Lynch's comments as an enlisted man. In fact, more so, he had served in the British Army before he immigrated to America, served in the U.S. Army, subsequently served in the New York Volunteers in the war with Mexico, and afterwards served in the U.S. Marine Corps for many years. Looking at Bartholomew Lynch's general comment, Lynch's statement is an interesting one. He says that all in all, considering the service in Florida, he felt that the what he saw after three years in Florida as a U.S. soldier, the most efficient corps for the warfare were the Florida Mounted Volunteers, particularly. They used their own clothing and forces and so forth, but as U.S. troops, they were supplied food and ammunition and weapons by the federal government, and that allowed them, of course, to not have to go farm and so forth for several months or a year, and during that period, they could engage in their scouting operations. And while these operations did not result in battles that were really worthy of newspaper ink. Lynch's point is that all of the battles that we like to read about, in his personal opinion, were errors that led to unnecessary deaths of U.S. troops for various reasons, and that the Seminoles could have been defeated without fighting any battles. And of course, that's one dragoon's impression 
by the end of the war, that certainly was many of the regular commanders' outlooks. We know that Colonel Worth essentially abandoned the combat strategy and pressed his forces throughout the year to simply find Seminole cornfields and plantations in the wilderness and destroy them and then just wait for the Seminoles to surrender. There was some fighting, but it was by no means on the scale or effort that was put in in the first few years of the war, which caused quite a few casualties. What made the difference for the military between failure, futility, and a favorable outcome? Under Worth, what made the difference? Worth employed the troops year-round from the spring of 1841. These were regular troops, so they were constantly in the field for almost a year hunting down the Seminoles through the summer of 1841, through the winter of 41 and 42, through the spring of 42. So in that period, they were not being humbugged with parade and review and the close order drill. They were actually out in the woods tracking the Seminoles and they were putting into absolute practice the theories of the light infantry drill. By the time they fought Halleck's band at Palakwakaha, they were probably some of the finest light infantrymen in the world. And I only say that not because Colonel Worth went out of his way to say that, but because he stated that Halleck's warriors were certainly the finest light infantrymen in the world. And so it speaks volumes when his relatively small command was able to defeat them from a fixed position where Halleck clearly intended to inflict enormous casualties on his men when they attacked. But unlike Okeechobee, again, Worth's men had become thorough woodsmen in light infantry and didn't allow that to happen. They lost one killed, and I can't remember the numbers, but several wounded. One might say the experience in Florida confirmed the light infantry tactics that Worth favored. Certainly Worth felt so. General Scott, on the other hand, although he never lost his preference for the heavy infantry tactics, he did come to appreciate the light infantry tactics better because of his service in Florida. What were Scott's takeaways? General Scott, even though he served in Florida very briefly, he learned some tremendous lessons. And when he had to form a similar volunteer army to fight in the war in Mexico, he saw fit to reuse many of the militia officers who he had first met in the Florida campaign. Why was Percival Smith a notable addition to Scott's staff for the war in Mexico? Among the most notable of which was Percival F. Smith, who commanded the Louisiana Regiment under General Gaines and under General Scott in 1836. Scott employed Smith during the war with Mexico, and he proved himself so efficient that he was commissioned as a regular Army officer, although he died of disease shortly after the war with Mexico concluded. The volunteer military system was born out of necessity during the War of 1812. How was the volunteer concept viewed at the start of the Second Seminole War? It was looked at as, if nothing else, as a process, a test. The various states that sent units of volunteers to Florida also largely sent units of volunteers to the war with Mexico. And then within 15 years, they all formed volunteer units for the war between the states by each other. So this was the volunteer system that was developed in the period. What were some constitutional or congressional problems with this? By concentrating on volunteer units for federal service, the federal government began to not necessarily seek to enforce these standing militia laws. By no means were all militia commanders or politicians satisfied that this was a proper application of the Militia Act of 1792 or the constitutional principles. By the 1850s, many states saw fit to largely nullify the federal militia laws and not command musters and inspections and so forth, claiming that they were unnecessary because we can just call for volunteers when we need them from the public. This volunteerism system worked well into the first year of the Civil War, but by the middle of the Civil War, both the Union and the Confederacy abandoned their militias to the extent that they both adopted conscription, which for the Confederates' part was one that was based on the French revolutionary model, not anything in our Constitution. And this led to lawsuits in the Confederacy. The Union then adopted a very similar conscription, which also faced powerful tests, particularly in the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. And I believe the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down conscription in the U.S. during the war, but the judges were then replaced with judges who then reversed the decision. The point being that under the French Revolutionary type conscription, you owe military service because you are a citizen, not because you are a member of the militia. And so that's a vestige of our civil war. The volunteers in federal service were utilized to invade Mexico, for example. Judge Bell in Texas, who particularly opposed the Confederate conscription law as an abandonment of 
constitutional civil government principles, wrote a powerful disagreement with the Texas Supreme Court against the Confederates' conscription law, pointing out that it clearly was not American law, it wasn't constitutional. The conscription allowed you as a citizen to be declared a soldier, and that if you did not report, you were a deserter. The term draft dodger, I think, was brought up in the 20th century, but in the 19th, the term deserter was used for a conscript, someone that was drafted. If you didn't go, you deserted. In other words, it declared you were a soldier in an army. Well, the Pennsylvania and the Texas Supreme Courts hashed this out during the war, much overshadowed by the war itself, of course, but the point being that, well, you were all already in the militia, so the president could call you out for military duty whenever he saw fit. So what is the necessity to have this law where you are put into an army by legislative action? It was based more on General Jourdan's conscription of the Jacobin period in France, really, than anything constitutional. On the one hand, you have people who may not want to be conscripted into the military. And on the other hand, we have people who would like to be conscripted, but for some reason or another are not able because they're not meeting the basic criteria. Who were they and how did they manage to serve anyway? During the War of 1812, there was, I believe in New Hampshire, some companies of exempts, as they call them, of older men capable of garrison duty forming and then being legally recognized by the state as a militia unit, and then subsequently being mustered into federal service as volunteers, you see, not as militia specifically because they were older than 45 in most cases. So in Florida, you had the same thing happen. Judge Smith in St. Augustine in 1835, all of the able-bodied young men subject to the federal militia laws and under the territorial militia laws, they were organized into a battalion under Major Putnam that then scoured the eastern coast of Florida trying to defend the sugar plantations and failed, and they garrisoned outposts and patrolled, and that left the city of St. Augustine largely undefended. So Judge Smith organized the old men of St. Augustine into a corps of exempt, which again was not recognized as a militia organization until January, February of 1836, after a few months of relatively active service, mounting guards and patrolling around St. Augustine, the governor of Florida and the territorial assembly passed an act which incorporated and recognized the St. Augustine Corps of Exempt as a component of the Florida militia until the emergency passed. And the interesting thing is that this force served at least two or three different enlistments as federal troops. So the Corps of Exempts of St. Augustine were mustered into federal service on several occasions. In fact, one of the more famous enlisted men of the exempts of St. Augustine was John Thomas, one of the survivors of Dade's battle. After his discharge from the U.S. Army in mid-1837, he remained in St. Augustine, and within a few weeks he enlisted in Captain Gould's company of Florida exempts for U.S. volunteers for the garrison duties at St. Augustine. Thomas subsequently died of disease during that term of service, which explains why he was in a military hospital at the time of his death, which was some time after his discharge from the U.S. Army. What are the numbers for overall casualties for the U.S. military in the Second Seminole War? The regular Army lost something like 350 men in combat during the war. The federal government did not compile the number of militia and volunteer troops, even those in federal service. They never compiled the numbers of them killed or died of wounds or injury. Unfortunately, I have found that there was no major effort by the public authority to account for all of the large numbers of American civilians killed and injured during the Seminole Wars, the American citizens killed Florida and the Georgia borderlands during the Seminole War. Newspapers provide significant number of accounts, sometimes conflicting, but that's a prime research avenue. Someone wanted to go through the records of the time to find, even create a relatively accurate estimate of the number of American citizens, uh, noncombatants, women, children that were killed during the Seminole War. So the U.S. federal government didn't keep tabs on the militia the volunteers called up, or the number of citizens, civilians who were killed in the war. What can we extrapolate from the muster rolls to determine the number of militia or volunteers who were killed in the war? For a cursory examination of Florida muster rolls, shows about 100 Florida militiamen died in active duty with the federal government during the Seminole War. That does not include those Florida militiamen that were killed while acting in territorial service, being called out by the governor, and it does not include the number of Florida militiamen killed 
in the defense of their own homes from various raids on the farms and so forth. So the numbers are not completely clear. I'm certain that the number of militia volunteers is very similar to the number of regulars killed or died of wounds. When you look at it, there were over 40,000 U.S. volunteer troops used in Florida during the Seminole War is a significant number, almost 30,000 individual enlistments in Florida volunteer units, again, most of which served anywhere between one month to three months active duty at a time. Jesse Marshall, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you for your time, Patrick. I've enjoyed our discussion immensely. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.